Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over chapter 2 in the third volume. This one is titled Monotheism and the Council of Gods, or it's actually God with a S in, a, in parentheses just to show the plurality of gods here. So, you know, we introduced a little bit of biblical scholarship views on the innovations of Joseph Smith's thinking and revelations last time. And we're going to go over, as it says, the Council of Gods and this idea focusing on current biblical critical scholarship and studies going back to what the actual views of the early Hebrews as well as along the way Hebrews were in regards to the plurality of gods or more than one god and what that means for them. But up front I would like to address the reason we're doing this is just to refute a claim from people criticizing Mormonism that say that the Bible is strictly monotheistic. There's lots of scriptures that specifically say there's no God beside me, and the Lord is one, and things like that. And then they use proof texts such as what I was referring to to prove it. So the point of this chapter is not necessarily to show that the ancient Hebrew view lines up perfectly with the current Mormon view, because it doesn't. But we're just showing that the ancient Hebrews didn't have a clean-cut monotheist. I mean, they were monotheistic as far as that term can go, but there wasn't just one Elohim, if you will, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but just wanted to get that out of the way that the ancient view is valid only in as far as it is showing in this, or at least what we're trying to do with it, in, in as far as it disproves that the Bible is against this idea of what we're going to go into here called metaphysical monotheism. So let me introduce that as the background to everything we're going to talk about here in this argument. So most other Christians, as we've explained, believe in creation ex nihilo. And the result of that is that they think of God as this being, and then there was nothing else, and then from God came everything else out of nothing. Therefore, everything relies on God, and there's God, and then there's everything else. And that's referred to as metaphysical monotheism, meaning everything depends on this one God. And so, this idea of a plurality of gods is inherently kind of, I'd say, you know, there's like kind of a, a knee-jerk bad reaction to that when people hear that idea that have this other idea. But as we'll find out, when we see the word G-O-D, and when evangelicals and Orthodox Christians see G-O-D, they're bringing a whole lot of baggage with it that is not necessarily what the people in the ancient times would have brought to that word when they saw God or Elohim or Yahweh or all that stuff. So, what do you want to say about metaphysical monotheism and its status without, you know, we've already talked about creation ex nihilo in the last couple times, so. The way that God functions in Greek thought and the Christian philosophers that followed is very different than the way that the Hebrews or and Israelites before them approach the idea. So you've actually given a good introduction to the way the world cleaves ontologically into two different kinds of being. Ontology merely refers to the different kinds of being that things have. So the one kind of being is necessary being. A thing that is necessary cannot fail to exist. It has existence as a part of its nature, and therefore 
there's just no way that you could refer to this concept and the thing that you're referring to fell to exist. There's actually an ontological argument that derives from that, and that is that to God is whatever, it's better to be than not to be. It's better to exist than not to exist, therefore God exists. That's kind of the simplest form of the ontological argument. And it gives an idea as to the kind of being that we're referring to. If we're using the word God, we're referring to something, the concept of which can't fail to exist. Now, I don't accept the ontological argument. I think every single version of the ontological argument is seriously flawed, both unsound, meaning that the premises aren't true, and that it engages in several logical errors. However, it's been very influential in Christian thought. So we define metaphysical monotheism to begin with. This is kind of the assumed view as to what monotheism means in the Christian tradition. And at least since the time of Augustine, this is what it has meant. To define it, there exists a simple, meaning that there are no parts to it, either materially or in terms of the concept. There's no conceptual distinction, for instance, between being omnipotent, being omnipresent, being omniscient, and so forth. Every attribute that God has is identical to every other attribute he has. So when I use the word simple, I'm using it again in the classical sense. I've defined this in the first volume. And so in the third volume, I'm kind of just assuming that folks by now know how I'm using these terms. But if you're just joining us for the first time, I want to give some explanation. So there exists a simple immaterial substance, SS, which is just simple substance, that one is necessarily the sole instance of the kind divine and utterly unique in the sense that there are no other members in the class of being that is occupied by SS. So this first term is that God is sui generis, which means there's nothing else of the same kind as God, and there can't be. And the reason that there can't be is that, is number two, SS alone has ontologically necessary actuality. What that means is the only thing that exists of necessity is God. Everything else exists contingently or in dependence on God. So God is underived, he's not created, there's nothing that, that he depends on for his existence, and everything else has a radically different kind of existence, a dependent relation existence, and the dependence is in relation to God, because everything that exists is created by God and held in existence in every moment of reality. And so that's the third part, everything else that is actual in any way depends on this simple substance for its actuality. Those are the assumptions that go into the classical view of God, and by classical I mean this view would be accepted by every Protestant, every Catholic, every believer of Islam, every believer in the religions of the book would, at least in terms of their traditions, accept this view of God. The problem is, is that when we begin to get serious about looking at the way that the when the scriptures actually assert that there is only one God, or what monotheism means in the scriptures, we see that there's really something else in this very notion of, of this metaphysical reality on which everything else depends is an anachronistic reading. That is, it's eisegesis, which is another way of saying it's reading into the scripture something that isn't there. They didn't have this metaphysical view. And so I think it's important to begin with a few more definitions that I want to distinguish. First of all, I use the term monotheism as kind of an overarching, vague term to say that monotheism means that there's just one God. It's very vague as to various different meanings of what one means, but it's just a general term for saying there's just one God. Henotheism is a term that has been coined by scholars to refer to many gods who are independently worshipped, but only one is preeminent. And so I could point to any number of ancient Near Eastern pantheons 
where there, for instance, Baal in relation to El in Ugaritic thinking, Baal is also worshipped. El is also worshipped. So Baalism in the Ugaritic documents is a form of henotheism. Monolatry is a different concept. It is that there's only one God who is properly worshipped as a matter of political duty or contractual agreement, but there are gods of other nations. This is a view that I think properly applies to the view of Israel, where the god Yahweh is worshipped, and at some points in Israel's history it's recognized that El is a distinct god from Yahweh, and he may also be worshipped, but as a matter of covenant, the covenant is with Yahweh. And other nations have their own gods, and so we'd have gods like Yam and Mat, Reshef, these kinds of different gods throughout the ancient Near East, but they are forbidden from being worshipped in the same way that idols are forbidden from being worshipped. So when somebody says you're worshipping an idol, it's a false god, it does, it's a god that doesn't exist, they don't mean that the idol you're holding in your hand is not real. What they mean is the, the being that you think stands behind that is unreal. This is different. They recognize that these other gods have been placed over the nation, other nations by El, and Yahweh has been placed over Israel as its god, and as a matter of covenant, they are required to worship only Yahweh. So they recognize the existence of other gods, and if they went to those other areas, they would recognize that everybody else is duty-bound to worship that god, but they're still duty-bound by their covenant to recognize only Yahweh as God. Now, the corollary of this is the notion of kingship. So if you're a king, say you're a king in England, while you're in England, you're duty-bound and obligated to recognize the king as the ultimate authority because he is obligated to protect you. He's obligated to provide a defense and, and to make sure that the peace of the land is maintained on your behalf. But in return, you're obligated to honor him and recognize him as the king. If you go to France, there's a different king. And if you're a true English citizen, you still recognize only the king of England. But you're not saying that the king of France isn't a real king. He's a real king indeed. But you don't have a duty of loyalty. You haven't pledged fealty to that particular king. We'll talk about one of the innovations later that happened in Israelite thought was that not only was Yahweh the God over Israel, he was God of the entire world. And we'll, we get into that when we get into Second Temple monotheism. And then there is what I have called kingship monotheism. Another term or way of saying that would be monarchical monotheism. Monarch, of course, is just a king. It is a view that there are many gods, but all of the gods are subordinate to a most high God, to whom the gods give ultimate honor and glory, and without whose authority and approval they do not act in relation to the world. So here it's like this. Assume I'm the king, and I send a representative to talk to another king. The representative is going to be treated just as if he is the king. But nobody really thinks that the representative is really the king. He's simply been authorized by the king to represent him. Now, if you're in the royal family, you may have authority. So if you're the king's sons or daughters, you are part of the royal family and, and you'll be recognized as having royal authority and maybe even in it being an heir apparent. But while the king is still alive, he has the ultimate authority. So this is kind of the corollary of kingship monotheism, and it's actually the way that it functioned in ancient Israel and throughout the ancient Near East. Because the way they modeled God, they modeled God on their notion of kingship. And in Israel, they even called the king God without thinking that he was actually a divine being. David, the king, is called God. He's recognized and called by that term because he, he stands in God's place and is appointed by divine appointment. So those are kind of the terms we're going to be working with. And then, of course, the very familiar term, Trinitarianism. There are three divine individuals who together constitute but one God. This also is a very vague statement of what Trinitarianism is. 
But when I'm working with it as an unanalyzed concept, I just use it in this very simple way. Later in the book, we're going to break down various kinds of Trinitarianism, Latin Trinitarianism, social Trinitarianism, and we'll look at various views in each of those as well. And so Trinitarianism, at least for right now, remains unanalyzed, and we'll get more technical about it later. Okay. The next section is titled Of Gods in Israel, and this kind of introduces an examination of what the ancient views actually were. So I'll just read a few of the quotes here. You said, It is no secret that the scriptures refer to other beings other than the one God as gods. Since the emergence of critical scholarship in the 19th century, scholars of the Hebrew Bible have produced an impressive array of studies relating to the ancient Israelite view that there was a divine council of gods presided over by Yahweh as the God of Israel. So, as we kind of explained last time, the proto-Israelites or Hebrews and the beliefs are kind of referred to as like the Ugaritic peoples. And so in the earliest writings that we have recovered and such, they refer to this god El, and but there's also an entire pantheon of gods, if you will, just like every other civilization, you know, like you you know, there's the Greek gods, how there's Zeus, but then there's a whole bunch of other gods, but he's, you know, like the head god. I mean, it's not exactly like that, but just that idea. And like, there's Egypt where there's Ra, but there's a bunch of other gods, but he's still the head one. Anyway, this ancient form of, you know, of these peoples is kind of the same, and they're not existing in a vacuum, just like no people are. And so this same idea that is in the ancient world is also in this people. And the view does kind of evolve over time. But the point is, is that there is many times in the Old Testament a reference to what's called a council of the gods. And I'm jumping ahead here, we can backtrack, but I just want to get here. So there's many in the notes you can see different places, but I'll just read off a couple just so you can see how many. So um, in Exodus, in 1 Kings, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, the book of Job, the Psalms, and various places within each of those books and a few more, oh, and uh, Nehemiah, Deuteronomy, and the book of Daniel, and probably, you know, others that we're not directly referencing here. But uh, you can kind of explain this a little bit. So there's El as what some people see as the earliest views, and then there's Yahweh. And I guess this kind of would go into the next section a little bit. But in these ancient views, there was kind of like a hierarchy of divine beings. And so there's El, the head god, and he's on his own tier. And the second tier is what's called Bene Elyon or Bene Elohim. That means sons of God or the sons of the Most High. And then the third tier is kind of, you know, like the angels and the seraphim and all those weird creatures and stuff like that. So there's this three tier of things that are referred to as Elohim, and they're all I don't know, I watched a whole bunch of videos by a scholar named Michael Heiser, and so I'll post some of the videos. He explains a lot of these concepts very clearly and concisely, and has like, you know, he shows you in different places, like where it refers to it, and looks back at the Hebrew, but I guess the overall point is that it is a common teaching in ancient Israel that there is a council of gods, and that's kind of what Joseph Smith picked up on that we referred to last time, from his studying Hebrew with his teacher, and that led to, you know, kind of his mind being blown, and then a, a whole bunch of innovations and inspirations, as well as revelation that kind of evolved the Mormon ideas. But anyway, so 
you could get really technical here, but by, if you can, just kind of keep it surface level and just kind of explain, you know, whatever it is in this section that you want to point out, I guess. Bottom line, what we're saying is that uh, we're looking at the Ugaritic pantheon consisting of El Elyon as the highest god, Baal, as his, really the one who stands in his place in the council and is recognized as El Elyon when he's in the council. And then we have a third tier of gods who are the sons of El. The same kinds of linguistic cognates, that is that linguistically the words used in Ugaritic and Hebrew are very close. And we have the same kind of a hierarchy in the earliest Israelite thought. And so we're talking about basically Israel before the monarchy is established. And El is the highest god. There is a, a right-hand man, if you will, who stands in for him in the council. And then you have the sons of God who are in the council of gods. And so they had a very clear idea, at least at, at one point. The idea of the sons of God never went away. This notion that El and Yahweh, and that Yahweh was one of the sons of God, one of the 70 sons of God, I may add, and that there were gods who had been appointed by El over other nations, something we'll talk about when we talk about Deuteronomy, was something that is in the oldest strata of texts in the Bible. And the theory is that by the end of the monarchy, the identity of Yahweh and El had kind of alighted in, into a single being. But they still always recognize the council of gods. You've got to keep in mind that the gods that they're thinking of are not a different kind than El or Yahweh. They're the same kind. Indeed, the very idea of sons of God is that they're genetically related as the same kind of being. In the same way that a king is the highest being, and he's incomparable to the other beings as far as, as the subjects of the king go. But that doesn't mean that the people who the king rules over are a different kind of human being than the king is. They're all human beings, even if the king has a divine appointment to be king. So that's the kind of idea that existed in ancient Israel as well. Okay. So the next section is Elyon and Yahweh in Deuteronomy. So all I have here, and you can expound on this, is a simple quote that says, El eventually came to mean merely God. So, you know, El, rather than being the name of the Most High God, just referred to God generically, without a reference to a particular Father God. Such a generic meaning made it easy to merge the identity of the Most High God, El, with Israel's God, Yahweh, whom the Israelites regarded as incomparable to gods of other nations. And so, as time progressed and thought progressed, that's just kind of explaining how you can have El and Yahweh, and obviously, you know, everyone's like, well, Yahweh is the God of Israel, so how, how can that make sense? Anyway, and you said there was a lot more to do in this section, so what else was there that you wanted to highlight? But Well, basically what we're looking at, one of the reasons the scholars saw this Ugaritic background in the Bible was the text of Deuteronomy 32 and 8 through 9. And it was made even clearer by the finding of Deuteronomy at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. And so to give a translation, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated humanity, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. And reading this in the context of the Ugaritic documents, what they understood it properly and, and with a lot of support, is that Yahweh was one of the 70 sons appointed over the nations by El Elyon, who is the Most High God. That's what El Elyon means. Can I just interrupt you real quick? Just to backtrack for people here. So when we're talking about Ugaritic texts, we're talking about discoveries that we've made later, and they're texts that are earlier than our current Bible, that you would see them as things that would have informed the biblical, like the final version that we have now. Is that what this is? 
Okay, where there were texts that were found at Rosh Hashanah, they were tablets, and they were written in Ugaritic. And so when they made this, it was an amazing archaeological find. They found an entire library. And so they could go and look at basically the thought of the people who were in the land of Israel before the Israelites were there, and from whom they derived their Hebrew language. So we're talking essentially about the forefathers of the Hebrews before they entered Israel. And what we see is a very similar linguistic meaning and background. And the Ugaritic texts give us an insight into the, there are a lot of terms in the Bible that remained very obscure. And, you know, the, the exact meaning of what we're talking about was, was not clear. But with the finding of the texts with these cuneiform writings at Rosh Hashanah and Ugaritic, it opened up an entire world to scholarship to see the relationship between the peoples that were in the land before the Israelites and their own thought. And because there was this correspondence linguistically between the terms that we found in the Bible and that were in the Ugaritic text, it clarified what we were looking at. But you've got to understand that Deuteronomy is not, <laughs> not written in Ugaritic. There are different strata of, of texts in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was, as we've already discussed one time, put together essentially by Josiah's scribes, claiming to have been found in the temple. In fact, there was a priestly caste that put together Deuteronomy in order to basically bolster Josiah's claims to be the unique and highest king in Israel and, and to recognize the temple in Jerusalem only as the correct temple where Yahweh was found. And so when we're talking about these things, we're talking about multiple layers where scribes have interacted with the text. And we have very old strata of texts that are found also in documents that were put together much later, but they've used older documents to basically give some kind of a basis for causing people to accept the text as authentic. So what they were doing was using these older texts to bolster the authenticity and credibility of the text that they had basically scrapped together. And so to get into this, to this background requires almost a course on Israelite history. But we're talking about this text, and, and it talks very clearly about Yahweh being established as the God of Israel by El Elyon, and other countries receiving their own gods. And so we recognize in this, and it's easier to see in light of the Ugaritic text. And so that's kind of the relationship. And that's why this text in Deuteronomy is so important, because it shows us a time in Israel's history from the biblical text itself when El Elyon and Yahweh were considered two distinct beings. That's, and that's the importance of it. It takes us back to a time in Israelite history before the generic meaning of Elohim was merely God, and we're looking at the distinction between El as the head God and Yahweh as one of the 70 sons of God in the Council of Gods. Okay, perfect. All right, now we're going to have David kind of take this next section, which is called Gods Prior to the Creation of the Heavens and Earth. Yeah, so pretty much in this section, it's, it's just used as further evidence that there is a plurality of gods, especially in old Hebrew thought. So let me just read some of these quotes here. So it just says, so just what kind of beings are the gods in Hebrew texts? So in Job 38.6, it refers to the morning stars, or gods who were already present at the time that God was set about to create. The direct quote is, where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, or set its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and all sons of God, the Bene Elohim, shouted for joy? And then again, uh, it refers to a... Uh, I guess this is a scholar, Randall Gar. He elaborates that uh, Job 38 corroborates that the gods were present at creation and the, the gods celebrated God's first creative act. Pretty much what this just it reinforces the idea that not only 
were there primordial gods that existed that were present at the time of creation, but they're, I mean, clearly referred to as individuals who had the capacity well greater than what some would imply. I mean, you want to elaborate on that? It's pretty straightforward, but yeah, I think I think it's pretty straightforward. It's just that we have these texts. There's also Job one, where I mean, Satan is one of the sons of God. In fact, it calls him a son of God in Job one, and he has a specific appointment to be the Shatan. The Shatan in Hebrew is not the same as it means in later Christian thought. It means a prosecuting attorney. So he is the district attorney who's bringing a claim. This actually starts out in the context of the Council of the Gods, and then we can get into the, there are numerous references, I mean, there are references, for instance, in Genesis 1 and 26, where we actually have a dialogue, and there are several dialogues in the creation account where there's a plural, and it's very clearly a a plural verb, but it would be difficult to mistake the reference, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and who's he talking to? Who is the hour? Now, I've heard the argument made in Latin thought and sometimes in Greek thought, you get this, what we call the royal plural. The king talks about himself as we. You know, we don't do that kind of thing. Or we have made a decision. But we don't find this, this royal plural in, in Hebrew documents. It's, again, an anachronistic interpretation. To be anachronistic means you're reading back into a text a view that came at a later time. And so the kinds of explanations that are given for this phenomenon by evangelicals and, and others are just, they're not consistent with the evidence. All right, that's probably enough for that section. You guys are okay with that. So next we're going to have Jacob take the next section, which goes over one of the main chapters in the Old Testament that most scholars use to reinforce this idea of the Council of the Gods, and it's Psalm 82. So Jacob, if you want to take the lead on that one. Yeah, so Psalm 82, again, this is the most prominent area in the uh, Judeo-Christian scriptures where we see a council of gods. And uh, it's only eight verses. So I'll go ahead, uh, I'll read them just real quickly, and then, uh, Dad, you can discuss them after that. But before I dive in here, though, which translation is this that you're using? Because I notice it's not the King James. This is my translation from the Hebrew. I went back and studied each of the Hebrew terms, and then I rendered a translation to make it more accurate and to expose the underlying meaning. So, for instance, when you get to verse 7, where it talks, you shall die like Adam, that's usually translated, you shall die like a mortal, but the term that's used in the underlying text is actually Adam. And a number of scholars have, there have been a number of, of studies that by the time the psalm is written, the notion of Adam would have been well known to the writer. And this is a more appropriate and more enlightening kind of translation. Same kind of thing as falls like one of the beings of light. That's usually falls, you shall fall as a prince. But it doesn't really give you the underlying meaning. And it fails to make connection with other texts. For instance, there are texts in Isaiah where a shining star falls, a being of light falls from heaven. That's in Isaiah 29. And so we see the terminology being reflected here as well. And so the translations that we usually get miss the connections with the other texts that we have in the Bible and what it's really referring to in the mythology that they accepted. And so I went back and looked at the best studies I could find to then tease out and make more explicit the kinds of poetic references that are being made in this psalm. Okay. And just a quick note before I read that is, again, you pointed out that you've translated as Adam. In the King James, they have it as men or man. And again, in Hebrew, man 
is also yeah adam is man and you know in genesis one where it talks about adam and man a lot of times they're in, right in so sometimes adam is translated as a as a personal name and sometimes hahadam means humankind it means everybody who is is like adam in being a human being the question is do we translate it as this proper name and I'm translating it this way for two reasons. I think it's the best translation and makes reference to another myth that would have been referred to implicitly in the text. But more importantly, because most people never see this kind of translation and don't realize that that's the word underlying the text, I think it makes a lot of sense to call it out and say, look, there's also this possible connotation here in connection with another story of a person who falls from a status of being in God's presence which, is, of course, is what Psalm 82 is referring to. So it's an unmistakable kind of reference. And so I've translated it in this way to capture what I think is a fuller recognition of the context in which Psalm 82 would have originated. All right, and without further ado, here it is. Elohim takes his stand in the assembly of El among the gods. He pronounces judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and favor the cause of the wicked, Selah? Defend the lowly and fatherless. Render justice to the afflicted and needy. Rescue the lowly and poor. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods neither know nor understand. Wandering about in darkness, all the world's foundations shake. I declare, though God you may be, and sons of Elion, all of you, but you shall die like Adam, and fall like one of the beings of light. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for yours are all the nations. All right, so this psalm begins with the assumption that the gods have been placed as rulers over nations. They're summoned by Elohim to a trial in his heavenly court, and he charges them with having failed to care for the poor and lowly over nations over which he placed them so that they would reflect his justice. The entire earth staggers because the gods have failed to reflect Elohim's justice and care, and thus Elohim passes judgment and sentences the gods to become mortal and die. Same sentence he, he actually passed on Adam in Genesis. And what happens then is that instead of there being the 70 sons of El Elyon over the nations, Elohim takes rule over the entire earth. He's saying, you're doing a terrible job. I'll do it myself. And so that's kind of the background of what we're looking at in, in this psalm. It assumes again, and the reason this is important, it assumes we begin with the same kind of thought world that exists in the Deuteronomy scripture that we just looked at, where the gods are placed over the nations by El Elyon, the highest god. And now God is calling them in account. This is in the council of gods. The phrase Elohim takes his stand in the assembly of El means that he's going up to a podium. He's going up to a stand where he is acting as a witness against the gods. And so this is a direct reference to the council of gods where Elohim is testifying against the other gods and the poor job they've done of taking care of the people over whom he placed them. And in that, this is an interesting thing because what he's doing is saying, look, I placed you over these nations and you've done a terrible job of taking care of them. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you mortal. You're going to be just like they are, presumably so that they can learn compassion and what it is to be mortal so that they can then know why they need to take care of them. In other words, they're doing this so that they can learn how to succor their people and more effectively be just and equitable with them. And so that's the import of, of Psalm 82. It clearly reflects the council of gods and this ancient notion that El Elyon is the head god. 
And more importantly, I think, is that Christ recognized, remember in Psalm 82 is the scripture that Christ quotes in ye, John. Ye are gods, yeah. Ye have said ye are gods, when, and remember, they're really upset when he says that in the Gospel of John. I go through that later in the book, but it, it has that significance for all of these reasons. And it's an extremely important passage for understanding the plurality of gods and the, and the council of gods in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. I have a few questions on this. I don't know how much we want to go into it, though, just because for sake of time. Well, go for it, because sometimes the questions that you have are the most interesting part. Okay. So first off, what event is this describing? What event, first of all, and who are the gods? Because if they're becoming mortal and going to fall as Adam, that sounds like, what what sort of an event are we seeing here? Well, I guess, yeah, I have the same question, but like, should we take this literally, or is this just a story, basically, and all you're trying to do is show it to prove that there was a view of multiple gods? Or like, is this, do we literally believe this? I don't think we do. Well, we do in this sense. If you read the comments of Gar, who I quoted, what this is saying is that when humankind is created, they're created to take the place of the gods before them. And so they're replacing of the gods, and humankind is then placed as the guardian over the earth. Man is given dominion over the earth. And what it's really saying and referring to, that the sons of God are made mortal. And so in being made mortal, they come to learn from their experiences to be as God is. That's the whole point of the psalm, and all of that should sound very familiar. I could go on for days about the theological implications of Psalm 82, and we don't have days to do that. But the bottom line is is that it assumes a type of, of pre-existence, if you will, given that kind of interpretation. The gods have become mortal, and I believe it's consistent in Mormon thought. And you say, do we believe this? Well, I believe that we were divine beings in the sense that we were of the same divine kind as our Father before this life in a pre-existence. We chose to come here to learn from our experiences how to be compassionate and care for others, and in doing so, we become like God our Father. This isn't supposed to be an historical event. This is a mythological presentation of the way that God has taken control of the world and how the sons of God have been placed in the world to become mortal. And so when Jesus recognizes it the same way, essentially, when he's talking to the Pharisees and said, you know, I have said you are gods, He's talking to them. It's like, well, he called you guys God, so what do you think? <laughs> when we look around, what we're doing is looking at the people who populated the divine world before we came here, and we're all of the same species. We're the divine species. This is one of the most profound teachings of Joseph Smith and Mormonism, is that we are not metaphorically, but in a sense, literally sons and daughters of God coming here to have an experience to learn to be as God is. So do we believe that? Yes, in that sense we do. Okay, but we don't believe that, obviously, this can't refer to us before the world was created, because what they are being judged for is for failing to be good gods to humans. Therefore, if they were the very... I mean, so I'm just saying, it's, it's the myth, and we're not saying that. Historiographically, you can't make sense of it if you're reading this as the pre-existence, and then there was a creation to accommodate the gods who were cast out. But it isn't presented in this in the sense that what you've got to keep in mind is the Hebrews didn't even have the same sense of history that we have. So trying to present something in a chronological order to explain what happened historically would be way beyond and, and different than the Hebrews actually thought of the way the world was or the way they talked about it. So you can't think in terms of, well, I'm going to tell a chronological history now. Uh, another question I had is, uh, in your translation, you render... 
and, and fall like one of the beings of light. And then you referenced Isaiah 29, where in LDS scriptures, we interpret that as showing Lucifer, who fell from being you know, the, the son of the morning. Is that a direct correlation that you're meaning to make yeah. there? Yeah, this is a direct reference, actually, to that same type of mythology. In the book, I gave uh, I give the background of the myth about Mount Zaphon and how the gods and the beings of light are on Mount Zaphon. And one of them tries to rise above the other, and this, this being of great light is basically cast out and thrown down. And he's called the son of the morning because he's being compared with the morning star. The morning star, of course, is Venus. And so they're talking about a luminescent being in the same way that Venus is a luminescence that shines above everything else. And so we get all of these kinds of connotations. But I, I go through those in the book in more detail. I don't think we've got the kind of time to get into this mythological background in a podcast, but I think reading the book would explain it. Yeah, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, we, we underline that part there. The evangelical notion that all that's being referred to here is a prince and what we're talking about are mere humans, I think is, is well summed up by the notion that what they're doing is actually adopting a particular view more to adopt a translation that avoids what the text actually says in, in order to adopt a view that it doesn't actually present. Let's go on then to the denial of comparability to other gods and, and deal with the actual argument against Psalm 32 that you deal with in the book. Uh, there's an argument saying that the psalmist can't be referring to a divine council of actual gods because, you know, in, in Second Isaiah, we have Yahweh saying that he's the only true God, saying, is there a God beside me? Yea, is there no God? I know not of any. But then you point out, and you also quote a number of people that point out that, you know, in the Old Testament, we don't see just one God. As we were saying before, that there's many gods, and then Yahweh was considered to be the God that was for Israel and more powerful than the other gods. There was always competing gods. And Israel realized that Yahweh was their God, and that since they were worshiping him, he's to be the most powerful. At no point in the Bible are they saying, Yahweh is the only God here. It's more, Yahweh is our God, the only God that we worship, and he can beat all the other gods. I don't know yeah. if we want to go more in depth than that. No, and I think reading, um, David, you might want to read what Ulrich Mauser says here to sum it up. Okay. Well, he just simply says that the Old Testament speaks freely without any hesitation or embarrassment of the existence of gods other than God of Israel. To be sure, the supremacy of Israel's God over all other gods is everywhere asserted. But the assertion always drives home the dominion of Yahweh over other gods, not the denial of their existence. I just included these other quotes in here. Just It was from a, a video that Michael Heiser does, and he shows exactly like, for example, in Isaiah 47.8, they're condemning Babylon for having this view of itself as a city. It says, Now listen, you lovers of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. And then there's another about Nineveh in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15. It says, This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. So, obviously, they knew that, you know, people that lived in Babylon knew it wasn't the only city and that the people in Nineveh knew it wasn't the only city in existence. Basically, these are not statements of denial of other cities or other gods, just boasts of incomparability, meaning they're, you know, we're the best. That's just a way to say Israel's God is the best God. It's like, to me, there's no football team except for the Green Bay Packers, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, we get these statements in Second Isaiah where God is essentially asserting, 
I am God, there's none other beside me, I'm the only God. Actually, the very assertions are implicitly asserting the existence of the other gods because he's comparing himself to the other gods. And it's like the taunt. It's like, man, you're nothing. Well, when a person says that, they don't mean you don't exist. They just mean, you know, compared to me, you don't count. So, And that's the same kind of way these texts function. Great. And then, yeah, we'll move on to the next section. But again, I strongly urge it. I'm going to post a bunch of links to some of Michael Heiser's videos, and he explains a lot of these things very, very succinctly and with pictures, too. It's great. So the next and last section, we kind of come back home to what we've been talking about. It goes into creational monotheism and gods. So the quotes here are, It is often argued that the Hebrew scripture supports a creational monotheism in which Yahweh alone is recognized as the creator of all things and that all things must include the gods, as the other gods. However, the gods, as we've seen in Job, were already there at creation already assumed as the context that exists when Yahweh sets about to create the heaven and the earth. Uh, again, in Genesis, when he says, you know, let us make man in our image. Like, that's weird, because he did never create whatever he's saying the us is. And then the Hebrew Bible does not support the ontological, cosmological distinction between creator and creature that arose only with the development of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo toward the end of the second century, after Christ. However, it is really the doctrine of creation ex nihilo that is at issue between Mormons and others who attempt to appropriate the biblical text to anachronistically support their view of genuine monotheism. I heard another podcast saying that they're, it was like some random Christian podcast, and they're like, it's kind of scary because it looks like, you know, the things that are becoming popular within like the scholarship and creational monotheism makes, makes us a little more Mormon, and we don't want to do that because, you know, I think unless you accommodate for these views and I think only Mormonism officially has, then, you know, it kind of leaves other traditions wanting when you look at the actual biblical scholarship that's going on right now. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out that the kind of assumptions that are brought to the text by fundamentalist evangelicals, that there is a biblical view, a single view of God, a single view of salvation, a single view of Christ. I wonder if these people actually seriously read the text but biblical scholars, in my view, have demonstrated very effectively and persuasively that the, that the notion that there is the single view is just nonsense. In fact, there, there are different views. There are different views at different times. The prophets have different views from one another, and certainly the writers of the scriptures have different views. And so what we're looking at is a kind of real-world text where people, you know, there's a diversity of different kinds of views. And what we're looking at is the way that these terms operated within the context of the culture in which they existed. And, you know, we've already mentioned how the notion that El Elyon and Yahweh were distinct beings kind of later became elided and became vague because the distinction in operation just didn't have a lot of meaning for them. And as Israel developed its national identity, especially after the Syrians sacked the northern kingdom and we were left only with Jerusalem, they wanted to consolidate their power in Jerusalem and make sure that there weren't competitors. And so we're seeing the views of God kind of reflect their, their political realities and the social realities with which they live. I'm not saying that it's not inspired, but it's like with Joseph Smith. You know, He takes these Hebrew lessons from Joshua Zeiss, is the Hebrew teacher that he had, a remarkably good Hebrew teacher, by the way, Sephardic Jew. And I think it opened up for him an entire world in which he could then go to God and ask and receive revelation 
And it's like this flood of, of new ideas comes in. And it's like, yeah, I mean, now you're beginning to see things that the eyeglasses you had on when you were thinking as a Methodist wouldn't allow you to see. Now you're seeing through more Jewish eyes and you see things in the text that are impossible to see when you have Methodist eyeglasses on. But let me also emphasize this in case this sounds arrogant. We all have a set of eyeglasses on. None of us are, are beyond biases. None of us are beyond the kind of cultural forming mechanisms of language and prior belief systems and commitments that would make us the ideal interpreter of a text. <laughs> and so, you know, we're doing the best that we can to understand the text, to, to look through scholarship, to see what the best explanation of the text is and how it works best. And then to see how the amazingly creative and insightful Joseph Smith in receiving revelation built upon these texts. And that's the whole purpose for which I have presented this particular look at the scripture. I want to emphasize again that I'm using biblical scholarship in the most honest way I know how. And as I look at it and, and have learned from it and engaged, you know, I, I've gone to the length of learning to read biblical Hebrew and, and you know, the Koine Greek of the New Testament and so forth because the text is so important to me. And I think it's important to be aware of the texts themselves. I think that our views ought to be textually based and reflect our reflection on the text. All right. Excellent. And also, just one other thing, and you don't have to comment on this a lot, but I think it also lends support to kind of your view of co-creative revelation, if you will. For example, these people, when, you know, in the ancient world, we can see clearly if these people really are receiving revelation, they're inspired by God. God didn't correct their, he didn't, you know, sort out and make sure they stopped believing all of their current cultural ideas. He didn't tell them that the world was actually a sphere and that, you know, they were in a planet that was orbiting the sun and all that. No, they kept their, you know, weird flat earth with the dome ideas and all that. But God still worked through them to bring about truths to the level that they could understand without completely washing away everything. And so that kind of leads back to when people look at Joseph Smith and some of the anachronistic things in the Book of Mormon or something like that, it, it's kind of the same thing. You know, he's working with someone at the level that they're at, and, you know, if they have interpretations that they're going to make that might not be necessarily exactly, I guess, correct, for lack of a better word, then this just supports that this is how God works, you know. The, this idea of inerrancy that Mormonism, I think, let's see, we look at that not as favorably because, like, no, it's not... You know, we don't think the Bible's inerrant. We believe it's the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly, and we understand it's overgone changes. But at the same time, we look at our scriptures without that lens sometimes, like, oh, okay, well, no, this is definitely how it works. Yeah, I found the, I found the notion of co-creative participation in Revelation, where it is a synthesis of, of human creativity and our best endeavors to understand along with the inspiration and revelation from God, to be a very fruitful way of reading the text. It, it seems to make the most sense to me of the text. And actually, it draws out from the text the ability to simply see it for what it is in its cultural context. And it's derived from reading the text and interacting with the text and doing my best to understand how is the interaction of God and human beings presented in the text and how do we make sense of the text in light of all that we know about it? So I found it to be a very fruitful idea in, in interacting with these scriptural texts. Thank you for joining us. 
To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.